There's a great scene in the movie Gladiator uh, where Maximus, played by Russell Crowe, is leading his troops into battle, and he's trying to motivate them and inspire them, and so he turns to this line of men, and he says, hold the line, stay with me, and then this great line. He says, brothers, what we do in life echoes into eternity. Right? That's a great line. You want to charge into battle after you hear that. And, and what he's doing and why it's such a great line is he's trying to motivate these folks into the task at hand, that they've got to charge into battle with him. They've got to stay with him, not give an inch, not retreat. They've got to go with him, risking life and limb. And to, to do that, to motivate and inspire them to that, he tries to remind them that what they're about to do, the task that they're about to engage in, is important. It's significant, and not just significant, eternally significant. Brothers, what we do in life echoes in eternity, that this thing that they're about to set their hands to has lasting, enduring, past-death kind of value. It's a great line. But Maximus stole that from the Apostle Paul, because Paul is the one who first comes up with this idea. And what he's doing in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, the verse that Joe just read for us, is he's trying to rally the troops. He's trying to rally brothers and sisters in Christ for the task at hand, to lead them into the charge. And he wants to tell them that the work that they are setting themselves to has enduring value, has lasting importance, is significant, and not just significant, but is eternally significant. That in light of a whole chapter that he spent outlining the doctrine of the resurrection, in light of the resurrection, in light of the eternity that awaits us, he's saying to them, let's do this. Let's do it well. Let's do it with all our hearts. Let's do it with all our lives. You've got to stay with me. You've got to hold the line, because here we go. And the way that Paul puts it is this. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. That's the word that God wants us to hear this morning. So let's take a moment and ask him for help that we could actually hear it. Our Father, we thank you now for this word, this one verse. We pray that you would help us to hear it, help us to consider it, and having studied it and understood it, that it would work its way deep into our heart and that it would multiply into many actions in our lives. Let us not be in this hour hearers who hear the word and so deceive ourselves, but doers of what the word says. Let this be for your good, our joy, and the good of all people around us. In Jesus' name, amen. Therefore, that's how Paul starts, right? Therefore. Now, when I was a kid, I remember hearing a preacher say that whenever you see the Bible say, therefore, you should ask yourself, what's it there for? And that shows you what a nerd I am, that I still remember that and thought that that was clever. But that, that therefore signals to us that Paul, in this verse, is about to sort of shift. It's sort of a, a hinge word. What he's doing is he's shifting and saying, therefore, in light of all the stuff that I said above, here's what that means. Does that make sense? So he's sort of turning to give you an application of everything he's been saying. In 57 verses, I've been talking about the resurrection. Therefore, that is, here's the so what. 
right? Theology is not just for your brain. If it's just tucked away in your brain, you haven't pressed far enough because theology is always supposed to work out in your life. And so now he's about to shift into here's how this applies. And Paul does this all the time. For example, if you read his letter to the church at Ephesus, Ephesians, for three chapters, he is pounding you with doctrine and theology and truths for you to believe. But in chapter four, hinge, it turns. And he begins to give you in four, five, and six the application of how all that theology works out. Same thing if you read the book of Romans. His letter to the Romans, 11 chapters worth of thick, meaty theology. And 12 verse 1 is, therefore... In view of God's mercies, let us offer our bodies as living sacrifices. This is holy and pleasing to God. Right? So here's what he's doing. I've given you all this theology. Here's how this applies. It's the same thing here. That in chapter 15, Paul has been giving this 57-verse thick treatise on the resurrection. In the first 11 verses, as we looked at when we started the series, he defends the historical reliability of Jesus' resurrection. He says, you don't have to just believe this as some kind of thing you're trying to tuck away into your heart. This thing is real. And if you remember, he says, 500 people saw him at once. And then he appeared to Cephas and then to James. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. You can believe this. And then in verses 12 to 34, he starts addressing some of the questions that the Corinthians have. Some of you will say, how can the dead be raised? And so he goes on to say, how can you ask that? For if the dead have not been raised, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. But no, there was death through Adam, but now through Jesus has come life. And he begins to address the questions. And then in verses 35 to 49... He begins to address another question, which is, and some of you will ask, how will the dead then be raised? With what kind of body? And so he uses those verses, what we'll consider in just a few weeks, to teach them on the physicality of the resurrection. This is not some kind of spiritual vapor that will be. This is real, and he begins to tell them that. And then it sort of crescendos and reaches a climax in 50 to 57, in the verses that Binu referred to on Easter, where he reaches the highlight of all of this and says, if all of this is true, man, we can taunt death. Where, O oh, death, is your sting? Where is your victory? Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ. And having said all of that for 57 verses, therefore, he turns to say, now here's how that applies. And what he says is, therefore, my beloved brothers... Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Now, we'll break that down in a moment. But here's what I want you to notice. That what Paul is saying is, in light of everything I've been teaching about the resurrection, in light of the reality of the doctrine of the resurrection, in light of the eternal life that awaits us all, here's the application Get to work. Here's the application. Here's how all this stuff applies to you. There's work to do, so get to work. Right? And, and not just work. It's going to be work that requires you to be steadfast and immovable. Work that requires you to always be abounding in that work. Work that's going to require you to remember that your labor is not in vain. And we'll get to that, but here's what I want you to hear again. He's saying in light of the resurrection, you have work to do. Now, here's why that strikes me. 
When I think, and I've said this before, when I think about the resurrection, my mind immediately goes to clouds and to heaven and to what waits us after death. That's what resurrection's for. And yet I'm finding over and over again that the text keeps pushing us to see resurrection and the earth and the work that remains here. Like, do you notice that Paul doesn't say, therefore, think deeply about the afterlife. He doesn't say, therefore, hang tight and wait for your heavenly future. He doesn't say, therefore, be at peace and wait for eternal life. Paul says, therefore, work. Therefore, labor. Therefore, toil in the work of the Lord. Right? It's not... Let's hear this good news of heaven and the afterlife. And as one preacher said, let's all retire to spiritual Florida and sort of wait. It's get your hands dirty. There's work here to do. The life after death seems to mean in the resurrection that there is much to do in the life before death. That the resurrection sort of colors how you see not just what awaits you after death, but colors how you view what happens before death in the life lived out here. So, for example, if you go back and read the gospel accounts, I've been struck by hearing. If you go back and read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and how they speak of the resurrection of Jesus, this shocking, unbelievable, unexpected thing happens, and you don't find any of them in response to the resurrection giving you a lengthy teaching on the afterlife. Instead, what you see in all four of the Gospels is that their first response to the resurrection is, we have work to do. Matthew, Jesus has risen, so go into all the world. And make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. Mark, Jesus has risen. Go and tell my disciples that I will meet them. Luke, Jesus has risen. You will be my witnesses, and you are to wait in the city for power from on high, because you're going to need power for this work of witnessing. John, Jesus has risen. As the Father has sent me now, I send you. Receive the Holy Spirit so that you can go. In each of the Gospels, it seems to point us that the immediate response and reaction to the resurrection was not just letting your mind float up to the clouds, but letting your hands get dirty on the earth. That there was work to do here. That means the implication of the resurrection for us, brothers and sisters, is not that we build monasteries and tuck ourselves into sort of bunkers where we dwell together. It's that we go to the ends of the earth and to across the street with the message and mercy of this good God and what he has done through his son, Jesus Christ. What it means is this. If you knew that Jesus was coming tomorrow... Right? If one of those biblical prophets who are always trying to tell you the exact date, one of them was actually right, and we knew he was coming tomorrow, it means we ought to work to the bone today. Right? If, if we knew he was coming tomorrow, it means we wouldn't call one more prayer meeting to gather us all together. It means we should all work to the bone today. Resurrection means that there is work to do. Now, who does this implication of the resurrection and application of the resurrection apply to? Who is he speaking to when he tells us this, this therefore? Well, he tells us next. Therefore, my beloved brothers. 
Therefore, my beloved brothers. So he's addressing his brothers and sisters in Christ. That is that the hope of resurrection is for those who have come to the family of Christ. We deceive ourselves if we think that at every funeral, so-and-so has gone off to a happy place. That's not what the scriptures teach. The scripture says, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he dies, yet shall he live. And whoever believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? That's what Jesus said in John 11. And so Paul is reminding us that all of this good news of the resurrection is for his brothers. But it's not just his brothers. He says, my beloved brothers. What Paul is doing there is trying to remind these Corinthians of the relationship he has with them. Now, We've not been studying Corinthians, and so that just seems like an affectionate term between Christians. But if you've read through Corinthians, you know what a stunning thing it is that at the end of this letter, he's calling these people his beloved brothers. You see, if you read through the book of Corinthians, this church is a mess. Everything that could go wrong goes wrong in Corinth. In the first chapters, you read that there's division, there's fractions and factions and teams in Corinth. So you got some guys in the church going, I follow Cephas. Another going, I follow Paul. Another team going, I follow P- Peter. Another, I follow Jesus, and so on. And so you got these teams all throughout, and there's division in the church. By chapter 6, you find out that there's lawsuits in the church. So brothers are bringing one another to human judges and courts and, and suing one another for gain. You find that there's immorality in the church, illicit relationships of every kind. You find that there's theological error in the church. Even in chapter 15, Paul has already finished talking to them about how can some of you say there is no resurrection from the dead? I mean, everything that could go wrong is going wrong. And Paul wants to remind them, despite all of this, I want you to remember who you are to me. You're my beloved brothers. Right, that this relationship that you have with Christ has formed a permanent relationship with me. And no matter how hard it gets, that's not going away. Therefore, my beloved brothers, and then he says, be steadfast, immovable. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable. That's, that's what Maximus saying, hold the line, stay with me. That's Paul saying, listen, you can't retreat on this. You can't budge. You've got to hold the line and stay with me on this. Be steadfast. That's steady. That's firm. That's stand firm. Be immovable. Right? I've given you 57 verses on the reality of the doctrine of the resurrection. Now you need to be steadfast and immovable. You can't waver on this. You can't be wishy-washy on this. And so I think Paul would think of us and and say to the one of us that is vacillating, that is sort of here and there, he would say to us, listen, I need you to be steadfast, immovable. To borrow an image, any dead fish just sort of floats with the current. It's the live fish that has the steadfastness to swim against the stream. I need you to be steadfast. I need you to be immovable. And listen, Paul is not trying to beat us up. He's just finished saying what? My beloved brothers. This is not a tone that's out to get you, but it is a tone that's saying, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and immovable on the reality of the resurrection. And if you are that way about what I've taught you for 57 verses, then you'll be steadfast and immovable. You'll bring that to what I need you to hear next, which is you need to be that way abounding 
in the work of the Lord. You need to have the kind of steadfast, immovable, steady, firm commitment to Jesus, his gospel, his resurrection, that leads you to a steady, steadfast, immovable commitment to the work of the Lord. You need to abound. Here's what he says. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. That that's what Christians ought to be about. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. That is, because of the resurrection, hear me, Christians at Seven Mile Road, you have work to do. Now, what kind of work? The work of the Lord. Always be abounding in the work of the Lord. And what's God's work? What's the work of the Lord? It's what he's been doing from the beginning. That's saving and redeeming and renewing and restoring and blessing and forgiving and pardoning and showing mercy rather than judging and wrath and and all of that work. And what Paul's reminding us is the wonder for us who are Christians is you've been called into sort of the family business, right? You're now adopted and so now you've inherited the family business and God's business has been to save, to redeem, to renew, to forgive, to extend his rule and reign all over the earth and you're now in that business. In fact, Paul will earlier in the epistle of Corinthians say, don't you know that we are co-laborers with God? Have you thought of that identity that you have in Jesus Christ? You're a a laborer, a co-laborer. He calls it a a fellow worker with God. That, That means that when we wake up tomorrow morning, you ought to recognize that you're sort of saying to God, God, what are we getting done in the world today? That God has decided to make you his business partner in the business of redeeming and saving and renewing and forgiving and all that he intends to do in the earth. We are God's co-laborers, his fellow workers, and we are to abound in the work of the Lord. That word abound is overflow. You picture a a river and it's it's not staying neatly in between the banks. It's overflowing the banks. This is a word of overflow. This is excess. This is excessive. This is extravagant. This is over the top. This is not squeaking by, not just enough, not getting by. This is overwhelming, more than what's called for. What Paul's essentially saying to us is, look, this is the way that the Lord has worked towards us. He's never been cheap or stingy. He's never just done enough to get by. He's never been that way with you. He's been abounding 1 Timothy says, in mercy and grace to us, so that when we respond and we work for the Lord, we are to be abounding, always be abounding in the work of the Lord. So hear this. This applies, right? This is practical. That means the next time that I have to lead GCM and I'm tempted to sort of mail it in, the next time Sunday school teacher where you've got to prep for a classroom with what? Two-year-olds, three-year-olds. The next time, worship leader, when you've got to lead with the band or whatever it is that the Lord has you do and you're tempted to sort of be half-hearted, just do enough to get by, sort of squeaking by, abounding in the work of the Lord is 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. No half-hearted work here. That's not the way God has been to you, half-hearted half-measured. The next time I'm tempted to think, you know, this is my work time, this is my leisure time, this is my ministry or Jesus time, 
1 Corinthians 15, 58 come and says, this is all Jesus' time. And at all times he may have you to be abounding in the work of the Lord. That means when you wake up tomorrow, you are seeking the Lord about how am I to be abounding in the work of the Lord? Whether that's at home or whether that's at work or whether that's at the supermarket, you are seeking to abound in the work of the Lord. Small ways, big ways, insignificant ways. But what we do in life echoes into eternity. Right? So at all times, we're seeking to abound, overflow, looking for ways to abound in the work of the Lord. I'll give you a silly, simple illustration for me this week. I have this verse bouncing around in my head as I'm getting ready to preach to you. And so I need to go to BJ's because Shainu said that we have something to return. So I grab Hannah and Micah and we go to BJ's. And I am thinking about abounding in the work of the Lord. We need to return something, so we go to the cash register, and the woman who's behind the cash register clearly looks really distraught, like she's having the worst kind of day. She just finished a customer before us, is sort of huffing and puffing, and seems like she's in pain of some kind. I can't tell if it's some kind of emotional pain or physical pain or what it is, and I'd usually be oblivious and blind to all of it, but I'm thinking about abounding in the work of the Lord, and so I ask her, you know, how are you doing? You seem like you're not well. And she told me that she hates days like this. And she's just having the worst day. And she hates feeling this way. And she just sort of lamented to us for a second. And so we didn't know what to do. But I'm with the kids. And so we told her that we would pray for her and pray that God would give her a better day. And so she finished. And then we carried on. So we're walking through the aisles. And Hannah prays for this woman. Hannah prays that God would give her a better day and let her be blessed today and have joy today. And so we did that. And so I'm thinking as I'm walking through the store, if there's something we could do, maybe we get her a card, maybe we get her a flower. How am I going to buy a stranger flowers? And then Hannah walks by, I kid you not, a bouquet of flowers and goes, Dad, we should get this for Mom. And I go, that's, that's a sign from the Lord. So I wasn't thinking about Shinu, but all of a sudden we bought a bouquet of flowers for Shinu. And as we're getting to check out, I say to the kids, what do you think about giving one of these to that woman? And they think it's a great idea. And so Hannah's going to give one, and then Micah's jealous that Hannah gets one, and she doesn't. So now she wants to give one. So we go up to the lady, and I say, this is the stuff you can only pull off because you have kids, right? I can't go, but I say to the lady, hey, my kids wanted to buy this for their mom, but they also wanted to give you two of them. And so we give it to her. Now, I, I don't like scenes, public scenes, so I, I literally throw it, and then I'm running out the door. And this lady won't stop, calls out from behind, thank you so much. You have made my day. You guys are the most wonderful, good people. And then I'm getting embarrassed, so I'm running for the doors at that point. Now, listen to me. It's a silly illustration, right? We didn't lead her to Christ. I don't have anything profound to say. But, but here's the, all I'm trying to say. This stuff about the resurrection has me thinking different. And it has me thinking different not just about, oh, it's going to be so awesome there. It is. It has me thinking about there's a lot of work to do here. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. And hear me, I know that's a small story, a silly story. But you know what I want for us Seven Mile Road? I want fresh stories for us every week. I don't want to stand here with an illustration from four years ago about the last time I actually did something for the Lord. I would much rather have a lot of silly, simple, fresh stories of abounding in the work of the Lord. And what if we were a church committed to 50, 70, 80, 90 small, silly, simple, 
fresh stories of abounding in the work of the Lord. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. And Paul ends by saying, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Samuel wrote, why can you be steadfast and immovable, committed to abounding in the work of the Lord always? Paul says, because you know that your labor is not in vain. Your labor, your toil, your struggle, your sacrifices, the, the sacrifices you make in time and energy and money, the things that you'd prefer not to do but you do for Jesus' sake, the risking of reputation, the risking of honor, the risking of life and limb, all the inconveniences you welcome into your life, all that labor, Paul says, is not in vain. It's not in vain. And if there's someone who knows about laboring, sacrificing, toiling for God, for the work of the Lord, it's Paul. Paul knows this really well. In fact, have you considered Paul's ministry resume? If you ask me for my resume, I tell you about where I studied and what degree in divinity I got and and where I've been for the last few years. Just hear with me what Paul's ministry resume is, what it cost for him to be immovable and steadfast and always abounding in the work of the Lord. This is 2 Corinthians 11. He says, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches." That's Paul's resume. And here's what he's saying. That's what steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord cost Paul. And here's the point. If there is no resurrection, then that life is probably the most tragic, wasted life there is. Right? Think of that for a second. If there is no resurrection, then Paul is a pitiful fool. If this 50, 60, 70, or 80 years is all there is... What a pity to have spent your life like that. Now hear me before you dismiss this as, well, that's Paul. It couldn't apply to me. If this life is all there is, then living for the American dream makes all the sense in the world. If there is no resurrection in the dead, then you do well to aspire for the picket fence and the 2.5 kids and the perfect safe life, and the overflowing, abounding bank account. It makes perfect sense. If there is no resurrection from the dead, then the highest pursuit we should have is the American dream. It it makes perfect sense. And Paul says, if there's no resurrection in the dead, my life of shipwrecks and beatings and abounding in the work of the Lord makes no sense. In fact, Paul himself will say, in 1 Corinthians 15, 19, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. If there's no resurrection, you should look at Paul and go, what a poor, pitiful man. That's verse 19, though, because verse 20 says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. 
as the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And then you look at Paul and you go, Paul, it's not you that we pity, it's that you pity us. Running around living like there is no resurrection of the dead. Running around as if we've got to squeeze out every ounce of joy in these 60, 70 years because this is all there is. And Paul would pity us and say, but in fact Christ has been raised from the dead. And if he has been raised from the dead, you ought to be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Listen, I'll tell you, what terrifies me when I'm thinking right, when I'm not drunk off the American dream, when I'm not high off of what the world tells me is the greatest thing in the world, when I'm thinking right, when I'm in my sane mind, the most terrifying thought to me is to get to the end of my life, 70, 80, whatever years God gives me, 60, whatever it might be, and to look back and think, I played it really safe. I never took any great risks. I just played it safe. I lived a perfect middle-class life. You know what that would shout? That I didn't believe in the resurrection. Paul, when we're in our sane moments, I think all of us have this desire that we want our lives to count. And what can get us there? It's the same thing that got Paul there. This deep, firm conviction about the resurrection. This immovable, steadfast conviction about the resurrection. You see, Paul was assured that what he was pouring his life into had dividends that Wall Street can't touch. That he was investing in something that was going to go past the grave and into the life to come. That his labor for the Lord was not in vain. That what he was doing in life was going to echo into eternity. Paul was so sure of that that he could abound always in the work of the Lord, knowing that his labor is not in vain. Seven Mile Road, let me end by saying this. Your labor is not in vain either. None of you. None of you who are beloved brothers and sisters in Christ. Your labor in the Lord is not in vain. So I think of you, and I think, who needs to hear that this week? I think some of our Seven Mile Road moms need to hear that this week. Moms at Seven Mile Road, your labor in the Lord, as you abound in the work of the Lord, it is not in vain. As I watch my wife's life, sometimes the life of a mom can feel like, you know, that Greek character who was condemned to roll up the boulder up the hill, and as soon as he got up the hill, the boulder came back down, and then he had to go back down, and then he rolled the boulder back up, and as soon as it got there, it rolled back down, and that's what he did always. And I, and I think a mom's life can feel like that. You do one load of laundry only for there to be a second one that suddenly magically appears. You, you make peanut butter jelly sandwiches only for there to be crumbs to clean up, and before you know it, it's time for dinner. You sit the child down, and you correct them, and you discipline them, and you tell them what is expected only for a half hour later for them to do the same thing again. And at those times, listen, on Sunday it's easy. On Tuesday morning, on Thursday night... It's hard to remember what you're doing and why you're doing it. It's hard to remember that this work is a work in the Lord, that what you're doing is you're building a home, that you're raising up a generation that fears the Lord, that you're providing the environment whereby these little disciples of yours might one day be trained to be disciples of Jesus Christ. 
You're, it's hard to remember that these are your great contributions to society, that they will live long after you, and they will multiply the efforts that you put into them. It's hard to remember that. And so this week, Mom, on Thursday night when you're exhausted and you're wondering, why am I doing this? What's the point? This seems so fruitless. I can't see any benefit. It doesn't seem like there's any return to this investment. Therefore, my beloved mothers at Seven Mile Road, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. I think of the single man or the woman who is fighting for joy, fighting for purity and holiness, fighting to stay right with God. And it seems like this is so exhausting, and why not just give in? It seems so fruitless, like there's no return at the end of your labor. Therefore, my beloved single brother and sister, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. I think of the frustrated brother or sister in soul care. Right? You've got that guy in your group, that girl in your group, and it seems like every week they're saying the same thing. And it doesn't seem like you can get at the right angle to what's going on in their heart or pray enough of the right prayers. It just doesn't seem like there's any benefit to your work. Or I think of the, the frustrated missionary at Seven Mile Road at their workplace, You've got that coworker that you're constantly talking to and they keep dogging you for their religion and it just never seems like they're ever going to come around. Or you're praying for mom and dad. They go to church but they don't know Jesus and you're not sure if they're ever going to be opened in their eyes to see. And you feel like, how many prayers am I going to pray? How much effort am I going to put in? What is all this labor and toiling going to accomplish? Seven Mile Road, we need to hear this week. Jesus Christ rose from the dead. That means we don't retire to spiritual Florida. That means we get to work. And that what we do in this life echoes into eternity, what it means for us. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters at Seven Mile Road Church, each and every one of you, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Let's pray.